you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we begin looking at the original son of David, Solomon. Although his brother Adonijah had crafted a master plan to take the throne, he was not God's choice. As a result, Bathsheba, along with the prophet Nathan, acted quickly to impose upon an elderly King David so that Solomon would be anointed. Pastor Victor shares the story of how this all happened, ending with the son of David riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with crowds shouting, Long live the king! And we'll look at parallels to Jesus next time. Here now is episode 431, Son of David, part 3, Solomon becomes king. All right, so a little review. Last week we talked about being the son of David, being the Messiah. We summed up what's called the Davidic covenant in three main points. All right, three main points. Do you remember what they were? The first one was that this individual that God promised to David would be his son, that he would have a son, and that his son would also be the son of God, right? It says that God would be his father, and this man would be God's son. And then the third part of this covenant was that this one who would be the son of David and the son of God would what? Be the king forever. That's right. That's right. And, and so that sums up the Davidic covenant. And so we spent so much time on that last week because really that serves as the foundation for the eternal covenant that is going to be fulfilled through Jesus. And we talked about how to be the Messiah means you're the anointed one. And the Hebrew word for anointed one, anybody remember? Hamashiach. Very nice. And it's the Greek word, Christos is where we get our English word, Christ. And so when you call Jesus the Christ, you're calling him the Messiah, which means he's the anointed one and the one that's anointed to be the king forever. And then in the second part of our time together, we talked about Jesus of Nazareth being the son of David and the son of God, and thus the best candidate to be the king forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. So tonight, you can take your Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to talk about Solomon, David's son, becoming the king. Solomon becoming the king. And in the second part, we'll see how that relates to Jesus. So when we get to 1 Kings chapter 1, we find the great King David at the end of his life. He's old and he's cold. (laughs) And so... They find a nurse to take care of him, a beautiful uh, young woman that's going to take care of him, and he's just, nothing's getting his attention. He's, he's tired, he's lived a long life and a hard life, and in 1 Kings, he's old, he's in the last days, and he's really just sitting around. It seems that he's just sitting around waiting to die, and this nurse almost seems like she might be more of like the hospice kind of nurse caring for him in his last days. And so what happens when David is on his bed, shut down, one of his sons says, hmm, dad's not doing the job, maybe this is a good chance for me to step it up. And so we read about this son, his name is Adonijah, in verse 5. 
of chapter 1 of 1 Kings. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And so he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father, David, never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? So he was amassing these things while David was unaware, and he never checked on him. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. And he had confirmed with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. So what this is, is Adonijah, David's son, is trying to become the king while David is asleep. And he gets the general, the leader of the military, Joab, and also one of the leading priests, Abiathar, and they side with him. That's a pretty good alliance if you want to become uh, the next king. Verse 8, But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So we, we hear that some of the spiritually minded people of the country didn't side with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatling by the stone of Zoleth, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, or who? Solomon. Solomon, his brother. So he gets all of the leading people. He gets all of the royal family together. He gets the high, one of the high priests. He gets the general Joab of the army, the chairman of the joint chiefs of its time. And they all go to sacrifice in another part of the land. And he's going to proclaim himself king. And the people that didn't get an invite were the greatest prophet who lived at the time, Nathan, Solomon, David's son, and Adonijah's brother, and then some of the elite men that sided with David. Now, this is, you know, for us, not many people know about Adonijah, so this maybe we're hearing about this for the first time, but you've got to imagine for the time, this would have been quite the compelling argument for him to be the next in line. One of the things we don't understand, but we can read in other places, and we've got some good notes on that, is that David had other sons and though Adonijah wasn't very well known, like Solomon or Absalom, it makes sense that he would be, try to become the successor for the following reasons. You can read up on the wall here. It's also in your notes. Adonijah was the fourth of David's son born in Hebron, and he's the eldest surviving. The first, Amnon, and the third, Absalom, have died at this point of the story, and the second, Chileab, is also presumably dead. He's unmentioned after 2 Samuel 3. You've got the leading priest, the general, and Adonijah himself is the oldest son. The oldest son would be the obvious, according to the way tradition goes, to be the next in line, right? That's the way it works. So he's making a good case and everybody's following after him. But Solomon's not invited. Let's continue on in verse 11. Then Nathan, the prophet, he finds out about this, and he spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? Does David, our Lord, does not know it? Come now, please, let me give you counsel to save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Nathan finds out about what's happened, 
and then goes and gets Bathsheba, who is David's favorite wife, because you got to have a favorite wife. My favorite wife is Jessica. (laughs) And so Nathan informs Bathsheba, who also happens to be Solomon's mother, and says, hey, does David know what's going on? Now, we already know that David may not know what's going on because he's old and cold, sleeping on his bed. And so Nathan says, I'm going to help you uh, convince him. We learn here for the first time in Scripture that Solomon was the divine choice to be the successor of David. It's possible that this wasn't widely known in Israel, nor in David's immediately family, but David tells us that he was known, or Nathan tells us that David and Bathsheba and the Lord knew that Solomon was to be the heir. You can read elsewhere in 1 Chronicles 22, 7 through 11, David, this is years later, says to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side for his name shall be Solomon. The name Solomon comes from the Hebrew word, which means peace or rest. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God, just as he has spoken concerning you. So God had told David, that the heir to the throne was going to be Solomon, not Adonijah. When God picks the successor, that's who the successor is. Even if you're the oldest, God picked Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, and David, and that's who it was going to be. But not everybody knew this at the time. So when Adonijah, the eldest, proclaims himself king and goes and gets all this support, the people start to follow him. And so Nathan and Bathsheba get involved to... Stop this. Bathsheba then, in verse 15, informs David. Bathsheba went to the king in the bedroom, and the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. Verse 16, Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? And the king said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. But behold, now... Adonijah is king. And now, my lord, the king, you do not know it. Can you imagine David's response hearing this, right? Waking up, you know what happens like when you wake up out of a deep sleep, especially if you're cold. And he has sacrificed oxen and fatling and sheep in abundance. He has invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but he's not invited Solomon, your servant. As for you now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them, Who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? Otherwise it will come about, as soon as my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, in other words, dies, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders because they would be in opposition to the new king. What a moment here. Bathsheba comes to David. Nathan is going to join her in a moment and say, King, you have to hear what's happened. Your son, not Solomon, but Adonijah, has proclaimed himself king, and all of the nation has come out as he's going to sacrifice and lead them in worship. And she makes this great statement in verse 20. She says, 
The eyes of the nation are upon you. David was the greatest king. He's the second king at this point, but he will go down in history as the greatest king of Israel. Every other king that's going to follow after him will be compared to him. At their death, they will say, and they were like David, their father, or they weren't like David, their father. They were a schmo instead. (laughs) And so here we have uh, Bathsheba waking David, not just literally, but spiritually up, and then the prophet comes in afterwards. We'll pick up in verse 28. Think about this. The presence of the royal family, the leading general, and Abiathar the priest would have given tremendous legitimacy to Adonijah. We cannot underestimate this. While he is a small footnote in the overall narrative of David and Solomon, this moment in real time must have been incredible. David's successor, his own son, is proclaimed king with all his brothers and sisters except one. All of the political leaders are there. The leader of the army of Israel, military leaders, and one of the leading priests, the religious leaders. You have every branch of government all supporting him. And they're now making sacrifices with the lame duck king in hospice care. Meanwhile, Solomon, the rightful successor, needs his mom to come advocate for him. This would have been quite the compelling moment for Adonijah's campaign to succeed David. So let's see what happens. David gets awoken in verse 28. Then King David says, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king vowed and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely, as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do so this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. So now you have the real high priest, the prophet Nathan, and they come into the king's presence. And this is what he says in verse 33. He says, The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel. And blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come up and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be the ruler over Israel and Judah. That's amazing. So David is now back to the good old David. You know, he's like, he's got out of bed, he's warm again, the blood's flowing. And he, he says, get the high priest, get the prophet. We are going to do this right now. Now, ordinarily, the king would take his place after the former king dies. But this is a unique moment here where David is still alive, but to ensure that Solomon is the legitimate heir, recognized not just by the people because they heard that maybe it had happened, but David himself is going to confer this right to him publicly. And he's going to be anointed to be the king over Israel. We didn't hear that about Adonijah. And Adonijah thought, hey, this might be fun. But God, through the word of David, is going to anoint Solomon through the high priest and the prophet. And we know what that means if you're anointed, right? It means that you're about to get mashacht, right? And, and if you are ha-mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, you're the real deal. 
David was anointed to be the king. Saul before him was anointed to be the king. They just weren't appointed. They were anointed. They were anointed. So Solomon is going to be anointed in your notes for verse 34. He's going to be anointed as king by the priests and the prophets. This was the way that the Lord would have his king identified. It was not by them amassing great wealth, military strength, or even the popular favor of the people. But it was by the divinely appointed anointing by the priest and or prophet of the Lord. We remember the king was the anointed one of God. And to anoint, we know, comes from the Hebrew word what? Mashach. The anointed one in Hebrew is Hamashiach, where we get our English word, the Messiah. The Greek is Christos, where we get Christ. The king of Israel, God's nation, was the Messiah. So Solomon is about to be the Messiah. Now that seems weird for us because we know Jesus is the Messiah, but before Jesus is the capital T, capital M Messiah, all of the kings before him of Israel that were anointed were the Messiah, the anointed. This is a type or foreshadow of the one who will rule God's kingdom forever, the Messiah Christ anointed one, Jesus. So let's see what happens. Verse 36, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say, As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And so Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, who were like the secret service, they went down and they had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok, the priest, then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. It must have been quite the procession, a big parade with trumpets, and everybody's yelling, Long live the king. All the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. That's pretty cool, huh? So here we have the way it's supposed to be, where the son of David is going to be anointed the king by the priests and the prophets. That's pretty cool, huh? This is the first son of David being proclaimed king. But we still have a problem, don't we? There's somebody else across town that's having a party because he's king too. Well, we'll hear what happened to Adonijah. Verse 41. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, why is the city making such an uproar? Remember, Joab's the leading general. And while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man and bring good news. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. So this young man comes into the inaugural ball, essentially, and they go, Oh, hey, we got a messenger here. You probably have good news. After all, the whole royal family, the high priest, they're all here. And he goes, actually, no. Actually, I don't. Uh, in your notes, I have the New Living Translation for those verses. And it says, and while he was still speaking, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Come in, Adonijah said to him, for you are a good man. You must have good news. Not at all, Jonathan replied. Our Lord, King David, remember who you thought was asleep? 
has just declared Solomon the king. Wow. Then, verse 44, back in the text, the king has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you've heard. Besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servant came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it. And all the guests of Adonijah were terrified, and they arose and each went on their way. And then Solomon, you can, as you read for your homework, dealt with what happened uh, with his brothers and uh, the other men afterwards. As we said, this is sort of an unusual event for the, the king to see his son be anointed. But it must have blessed the heart of David so to be able to be there when his son became the new king. And he got to see him anointed, and then he got brought back, and David had him sit on his throne. Whether it's weeks, months, or years later, David is about to die, and he calls all of Israel together. And what he's going to do, beyond just the anointing and and the proclamation and the parade, he is going to confer the Davidic covenant over to Solomon. And we can read that, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Verses 1 through 8. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes, and the commanders of the division that served the king, and the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds, hundreds, and the overseers of all the property and the livestock belonging to the king and his sons, with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. That's all one verse right there, what we just read. As everybody... Who's anybody? David calls back home to Jerusalem. And then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And so I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build my house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever, if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. You see what David just said to him? He said to me, your son, whose son? David's son, is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen for him to be a son to me, and I'll be a father to him. That's that Davidic covenant. Son of David, who God would care for as a son in this case, I will establish his kingdom how long? Forever. So, The promise made to David is now being transferred to Solomon on this great day after he's been anointed. 
And so he continues on in verse 8 and says, So now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. What a moment here. What a moment. In fact, the reign of Solomon is a time unparalleled in the history of the people of Israel. There will be peace, prosperity, abundance, and an exclusive worship of Yahweh, the true God. Next week, we'll see what his kingdom was like a little more specifically and how it paints a picture of what the millennial reign of Christ will be like. But let's just stop for a moment and think about what we've just read. We have David transferring over the authority of his kingdom to his son, Solomon. And the way that he is proclaimed to be the king is they get Solomon, they put him on a donkey, and they parade him through Jerusalem shouting, here's the king of Israel, here's the son of David. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, let's talk about that after we take a short break. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Uh, Check out more Pastor Victor resources at his website. I've got links in the show notes below. In our Facebook group, I posted the text Titus 3, 5 through 7, which reads, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This powerful scripture reminds us that the Christian experience especially the starting point of the Christian experience, has nothing to do with your good deeds. But instead, it is the result of God's grace. It says very specifically in this text, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but it's according to his own mercy. And that God cleans us, he regenerates us, he renews us through the Holy Spirit. And we cannot save ourselves just by stopping doing bad things and starting doing good things. Uh, Kirby Hopper wrote in, Indeed, us Christians have a changed character by the help of God's grace. Assuming a change has taken place, of course, that should cause us to have patience with those who are slow to change due to the lack of help from God for whatever reason they lack His grace in their lives. We have an unfair advantage, so to speak, and should not be boasting of our goodness that leads to our salvation. I wanted to interact with Kirby's position a little bit here, which is, uh, I think the term for it is Pelagianism or hyper-Pelagianism. I'd have to leave it to him to tell us what label he would identify as. Uh, But it's an extremist position that teaches all that matters is just doing right things instead of doing wrong things. And I think what this text in Titus 3, 5 to 7 is teaching us is that your good works are not going to save you. You really do need outside help from God. And so a righteous atheist is not going to be saved. Uh, Somebody that is righteous but doesn't believe in Jesus, a righteous Muslim, is not going to be saved. Uh, This is not the teaching of Scripture. Now, whether God gives people who never heard the gospel a second chance to hear it, I don't know. Scripture's silent on that. And I'm certainly not going to say that ultimately God won't give everyone a chance 
or maybe he already sees people's hearts and, and brings the gospel to those who are open to it. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't have to figure that out. But what I do know is that if you do want to be saved, if you do want to be and not just changed in your character or changed in your behavior, but if you want to be forgiven from the bad things you've done, from the sins that we have committed, then you really do need God's grace working through the death of Christ for our sins, which is very clear through Scripture that Jesus died on behalf of our sins. Then you can be set free. And yes, from an external perspective, freedom looks like, salvation looks like you were going one direction and then you changed and you're going another direction. But there's also an internal aspect to salvation. And that is called here in Titus 3, 5 through 7, is called the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the born-again experience, which I experienced myself back when I was uh, 19 years old, where not only do you suddenly have new desires, but you have a heart change, a heart that seeks to serve God, a heart that says, not me, but you, and a heart that is not saying, well, I'm going to now do right things so that God has to give me eternal life. No, that's, and I'm not saying that's what Kirby believes, but that's not at all the way salvation is portrayed in the New Testament. It's portrayed as this incredible gift of God that changes us on the inside so that we then have external changes in our lives as well. And this whole concept of grace, we could look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which is the Textus Classicus for this topic. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This text, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, is so crystal clear on the subject of salvation. It is not your good deeds that, are, that save you, that make God adopt you into his family, that regenerate your heart, that bring the Holy Spirit into your life. No, no, no. That's exactly what it says. That's, that's precisely the opposite of what it says. Once again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And this very simple insight was really the core of Martin Luther's thinking 500 years ago that initiated the separation from the sacramental works righteousness system. Now, do I believe in doing good works? Yeah. Well, I think Ephesians 2 is very clear in verse 10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we are part of this new creation, if we have come to the end of ourselves, if we have admitted our sin, if we have cried out for salvation and believed in the gospel message, not just the kingdom, which is obviously the foundation of the gospel message, but also in the, the cross of Christ, that he died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead. Clear components of the gospel. And that's not just moral transformation. That is, is primarily redemptive. Now, moral transformation will be there if you are genuinely saved, if you are genuinely redeemed, if you are genuinely made God's child, then you will seek to imitate your father. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2.10 is saying. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we would have good works if we are genuinely saved. Now, can you lose your salvation? 
I believe yes. I believe Scripture is crystal clear on that. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So it is possible to believe in vain, have it not produce good works in your life, and for you to then lose that salvation. How that exactly happens, Scripture is not specific on it, but that it does happen is certainly a danger we are warned about over and over throughout the epistles of Paul, and especially in the epistle to the Hebrews, which interacts with this exact scenario a couple of times. So, salvation is by grace through faith. I believe it is your faith that activates salvation, but then it's all God who redeems you, who justifies you, who forgives you, who creates within you a new heart that is desirous of doing God's good deeds, and that then we carry those out. And we don't carry those deeds out in an effort to make ourselves perfect so that God will give us eternal life. No, eternal life itself is already a gift, and the Holy Spirit is the pledge of that inheritance. It's the, it's the down payment, the first installment of the coming kingdom of God is that Holy Spirit within the believer. So what is our obedience? Why do we obey? Well, I think there are a number of really good reasons for that. And, and one of them is, as Kirby rightly pointed out in that Facebook comment, uh, one of them is that we are seeking to imitate Christ, even Christ on the cross, as it says in First Peter, that uh, we are to walk in his steps and that his, how he carried himself throughout his life and preeminently in his suffering and death is our example. So no question there. But it's more than that. We're also motivated by the fact that we don't belong in the kingdom. We don't belong in God's family. We are not worthy. We are not qualified. We are not good enough. And because of that understanding, our hearts are full of gratitude. And that is a great motivator to do what God calls us to do and to live how he calls us to live because we have been saved, we have been cleansed, we have been regenerated, not of our own, not of our own, but of him. Those good deeds that we do are not in order to earn more salvation or earn salvation in the first place, but they are a response to the salvation God has already wrought in our lives. And a third motivator for doing good is as a witness to the world that God is good, as a witness to the world that what God is planning to do with the world in the last days, to make everything wrong with it right, to heal it, to bring restoration throughout all of creation, he's already doing in our lives, in our hearts today, so that we would synchronize with the gospel message we have to share with people and be able to testify that God is already beginning kingdom work in his people even prior to the coming of Christ. So those are just some thoughts about that. I'm sure Kirby, who I have met in person before, and I have a deep respect for him as a Christian man, you know, I'm sure he will uh, reply and uh, share some more of his thoughts. Uh, but I think on this issue, we do disagree. I don't think this is just about behavior. I don't think it's just about even character. I think it is, there, there is something deeper 
And maybe we'll come back to this in future episodes. We'll see. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you could do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.